My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Helen Joyce. Uh, she's the Britain editor for The Economist uh, and also the author of Trans. Welcome, Helen. Thank you for having me on. Um, you are in the midst of probably the most uh, radioactive subject that um, exists at the moment, you know, the, the forefront of both civil rights and uh, the backlash. Um, you know, how, how, does, how does it feel and how, did, how come? How come you came to this subject and why, why is this interesting to you? Wow, three big questions there. So the first one, how does it feel surreal, really? I mean, who would have thought 10 or even five years ago that the question of whether there were two sexes and human were mammal, humans were mammals and that that might be on occasion significant, especially for the female ones, would even be a question, would even be an issue, let alone a supposed civil rights issue. Uh, I still sometimes feel like I fell through you know, to the upside down or something like that. Um, what was the next one? How does it feel? <laughs> a bit, I mean, just, just kind of uh, bewildering, but fascinating. Um, and how did it happen? Well, strange, really. Uh, so I have been at The Economist since 2005, and I've done various jobs. I was education correspondent. I was Brazil correspondent based in Sao Paulo. And then when I came back to the UK in 2013, I took over a section called the International Section, which runs a themed long read every week on incredibly varied subjects, you know, nuclear disarmament, development issues. And one week the editor said, why do kids keep coming home and saying, you know, such and such is non-binary? And I went, no idea. I'll look into it, shall I? And that was the beginning of three years of being completely astounded over and over again. So I wrote something and then I commissioned something. And then in, I think, 2018, I finally realized what I hadn't realized up till then, which was that they seriously, seriously mean it. They mean it when they say there is no such thing as male and female. You know, you can't define woman any particular way. Um, you know, that what makes you who you are is just what you declare yourself to be. And I had not realized that they meant that, actually. I thought that they understood what man and woman were and male and female were, but they were trying to, understandably enough, fit in a few exceptional people who were not happy. And, you know, I'd not actually got a problem with that particularly. And then I realized, no, they really meant it. They were dissolving the whole categories. And that was the moment that people call peak trans. And so I peak transed in late 2018. And then at some point in 2019, decided to write the book. Yeah, I think this, um, there's, there's definitely an acceleration happening on this front. Um, this, like you said, five years ago, this was, you know, at, at, maybe barely fringe some people you know knew about it you know weird forums tumblr i'm sure uh but yeah. uh, but now it is probably one of the most um kind of aggressively promoted subjects uh out there i mean why now what, what was there a kind of a tipping point or what what precipitated it 
So I'm told by the people who knew a lot about it way before I did that this has been going on for a long time. So there's a journalist, Julie Bindel, here in the UK, who has been attacked on this subject since 2005. And she's a lesbian woman who, um, and the les lesbian people were the people who noticed this first. Because if you don't believe that the sexes are real things, then male people who transition to live as women, most of them are heterosexual, in fact, people are always surprised by that. They assume that it's homosexual men, but no, it's heterosexual ones. When they transition, they're lesbians. And the next thing that astonishes people is that transition doesn't mean anything physical, like it used to. Decades and decades ago, it meant that you went through quite extreme surgery to try to turn your body into something that appeared like the opposite sex, but now it just means a declaration. So now you've got heterosexual male people counting themselves as lesbians. And so if you, I'm told, I'm not lesbian myself, I'm told that if you go onto any of the specialist websites like her or Hinge, you know, a third to a quarter of the people on there are heterosexual men, um, you know, beards the lot. And if you say anything about this, you're kicked off because you're transphobic. So Julie noticed a lot before other people and she has been attacked really nonstop for 15 years because of this. Other people started noticing maybe about 10 years ago, but I, that's when I was in Brazil. I was just busily writing about, you know, corrupt politicians and the Amazon and you know, economic development and things. So I missed the sort of pivotal moment in the UK where I might have seen the start of this. And then I was just blissfully un unaware of it. Um, you know, I, I would have thought like most people that this was the next gay rights issue. Like everyone thinks that at first, the first time you see it, you think, oh yes, this is the next gay marriage. And it's only after you start to look at it that you think, hang on, gay people just wanted to be able to do what they wanted in peace. They didn't want everyone else to be forced to see them as something they're not. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of the, the subject that keeps coming up. And, and I see, you know, whenever, whenever I see pushback on maybe some of my posts, I mean, I've, I've tweeted a little bit about trans. Obviously, I'm not as, as, as deep into the subject as you are. I'm just have the, you know, the, the, the outrage of someone who's like sees this as kind of like a Gnostic thing of, you know, kind of transhumanism, which I also don't necessarily, uh, you know, think is a, is a great next step. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of my angle. But I see the subject of erasure coming up, you know, a genocide or just like the idea that by not participating in this, you know, constructed identity, me as a third party, I am erasing, uh, you know, I'm actively doing something to harm people in that community, which I think is, is, is a novelty in the civil rights discourse. Like usually civil rights means, you know, you either are left alone or you, you get some form of, you know, support from the government or things like that. I can understand that. Uh, but the idea that me not actively participating in, in a, a narrative uh, you know, erases someone or, or participates in some form of genocide, that, that is a bit new. Like, well, what, what is up with this, with this line of, uh, of argument? It's because it's a completely different sort of thing. It's managed to get so far because it looks like a civil rights movement, but it's not a civil rights movement. So civil rights movements are when a group who have been, you know, left outside in some way, not, you know, not having the vote, not allowed to own property, whatever it is, not allowed to marry, uh, you know, denied the privileges that other people have, demand that they are allowed to have those things too, that women are allowed to vote, that black people are allowed to partake in civil society in the same way that white people can. That's a civil rights movement. There's no civil rights that people who uh, want to identify as members of the opposite sex were lacking. They had the same rights as everybody else. You know, every female person can do things that female people are permitted to do. Every male person can do things that male people are permitted to do. Trans people want to be permitted to do the opposite sex things. So you're talking about a male person who wants to enter female-only spaces or a female person who wants to enter male-only spaces. That can't possibly be a civil right. 
because the only places that we still have that are male and female only are that way for a reason that women's and men's bodies are different and they're different in irreducible ways you know we have sex, single sex sports because women are not physically as strong as men because our bodies are optimized for a whole second purpose which you're busily experiencing every second of your day at the moment yes so <laughs> you know you know we have separate toilets for a reason we allow women who have been raped to demand that they have a woman to examine them for a reason there's literally nothing left that we do for no reason that's different from male and female people there used to be of course but there isn't now that everyone can marry whoever they want that women aren't kept out of certain jobs and so on so what what the trans movement is trying to do is to say that male people can do things that only female people are allowed to do and vice versa and that demands everybody else play along so that's the bit where they get to you and they say you're erasing me you're denying my rights it's genocide you are stopping them from being what they want to be which is what they are not and i know all of that sounds sort of hurtful but i mean that's just the fact that is that is what in its essence is being demanded that everybody else play along and in a way i think people are playing along at least uh, in in the mainstream you know the, the you hear people quite often say that you know men men and women might be able to play the same sports if they're maybe in the same height league or by weight category this is just you know so uh, against just don't all you of... wonder whatever happened what happened Did, i sometimes think to myself was there a brain worm i mean the first time i heard these arguments I was so stunned that I couldn't think of anything to say. The first time somebody said to me, no, men aren't stronger than women, that's a very unfeminist thing to say, I almost couldn't breathe, I mean, let alone speak. I mean, the things I have heard, the first time somebody said to me, um, oh, 1.7% of the population can't be classified as either male or female, the same number of people as have red hair. Now, I'm Irish, I know a lot of people with red hair, but I've never in my life met someone who was neither male nor female. Not once. None of us have. There are rare conditions called intersex, but that's a stupid label for this umbrella set of highly unusual conditions, literally almost none of which raise even momentary doubt about what sex somebody is. So why do people play along? I, I think the first thing is that um, people just aren't thinking about it very deeply, and I have full sympathy with that because I was in the same position. Like the first time I heard about it, I just thought, oh yeah, next gay marriage, fine, whatever. But I had a different image in my mind. I had an image of somebody that wasn't actually thinking that they really were a member of the opposite sex. They were somebody who had this rare condition called gender dysphoria. They went through enormous grief. We could accommodate them, you know, as a rare exception. That's fine. Um, and I think most people are still there. That's what they still think is being asked. And then, of course, the younger people have been grotesquely miseducated. I mean, what they've been taught in the last 20 years uh, especially from, from American campuses, like it started in America in the 1990s and then spread. You know, the sort of, as you say, <laughs> women can be as strong as men or, I mean, why not, why can't they say, why don't they say that men can have babies then? Like, you know, if women can be as strong as men by trying, then men should be able to have babies by trying. Yeah, there so, was a, a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, who proved this point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's possible. <laughs> so <laughs> There we go, sorted, yeah, right. I, I mean... It is still extraordinary to me. Um, I guess there's also the step-by-step -step thing, you know? I think anyone who really believes the full madness now certainly didn't believe that 10 years ago. So it, it'd be interesting to see how they, if, if you could get them to think, like I've never managed it. You know, how did you feel 10 years ago? 10 years ago, you didn't think that men could be women. You know, 10 years ago, you didn't think that there were, it wasn't possible to define the word woman. How did you come to think that? 
because there's been this weird rewriting of history that we always thought like this and that I'm the weirdo who thinks differently. Yeah. Do you think this is tied into kind of the, 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 the general polarization that you see between, you know, what's called the term the, the left and right and, you know, people who are kind of gripping onto tradition and, and categories like that. Because uh, in a way, because because it is so tribal, it's like, okay, you know, what what does my tribe believe? You know, we, we believe women, we believe in minorities, this is a new minority, you know, don't think too much about it. I'm, I'm just gonna, you know, hang my hat in this corner, because this is, this is the, the right side of history. And I feel like a lot of people are just kind of throwing in their, uh, their hats with the right side of history and, and not even wanting to think too much about it. Uh, because yeah I think that's completely right I think the polarization plays an enormous part in it because polarization the way it works is um the other side seems so unattractive to you and, and, and to be honest that the edges and particularly in America are desperately unattractive on both sides but you know when it's your side and you look at the other side and you see people who you know actual white supremacists on the edge of the right in america and you think like literally anything is better than that well then you're ripe to your own lunatic fringe say really lunatic things because they know you've nowhere to go and then you become the crazy thing that the other side looks at and says well i know we've got white supremacists on our fringe but i mean those people actually pretend there's no such thing as man and woman they're actually literally insane and so both of you head off in the opposite directions and your lunatic fringes can do what they like. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure that most Republicans and most Democrats don't believe the same thing as their lunatics do. And yet it's the lunatics who get to set the policies. Yeah, let's see the intransigent minorities, the the, the people who, who are out there screaming about this stuff. And few people are. I mean, I think with, with now with kind of... Um, politics as as consumption or politics as entertainment more people are consuming the the, the narratives uh you know even yeah even through twitter or things like that um but it's still it's still pretty pretty fringe uh, i i want to ask you as well about why why do you think the uh, the uk especially is a a uh, kind of a, a battleground for these conversations because you know this this stuff is happening obviously in the in the U.S. as well and like you said it has root deep roots in, in U.S. campuses and kind of that's where the origin point is but at least for for turfs or the the so-called trans exclusionary uh, radical feminists um, the U.K. seems to be you know the the mother load <laughs> that's where they so, I think it's because it's at a sweet spot if you want to have a row you have to be night you have to have a significant number of people on both sides. So, I mean, this is an American madness. Like this was literally cooked up on American campuses and it spread from there because what happens in America does go global because of Americans, America's cultural dominance. So when I say America, I mean half of America, blue America. So obviously it spread to Canada near his neighbor. Canada's like just blue America. So there's not, not even a red America to stand against it. So Canada fell completely. Canada's all full blown trans women and women you know, let rapists into women's jails, some massive human rights abuse, not to let males identify into, you know, any sports they like, any women's sports, et cetera, et cetera. Canada's like that. It's like California. Next culturally closest would be the UK, but actually the UK hasn't got um, some of the same uh, neuralgias as America does, in particular on race, and it's not as polarised. So... It has got, I think, especially on universities, it's very similar to America. So it imported the ideology and the ideology did take root. But there's a very significant strain on the left that is not like that at all in the UK, which there isn't in the US. The, the left in the US is a very um, performative, linguistically based, campus driven left. 
in the UK, there's still a strong um, materialist sort of left that grew up out of the unions that's not, that takes no shit, basically. So there's a lot of women here who wouldn't be, you know, they're not, they're not sort of what you might call glass ceiling feminists. They're, you know, they're still too much domestic violence feminists. And so those women never fell for it. And that makes it very hard to say that it's a polarizing topic here. I mean, it's left-wing women are pushing here, not right-wing women. Right-wing women agree, but it's all the movement is happening on the left. And then if you go further away, uh, culturally, you get to places like Germany, France, and the Scandinavian countries. They also imported this. They also imported the child transitioning protocols and so on, but actually they're shucking them off now quite quickly. So, um, for example, both Finland and Sweden have rode back on childhood transitioning without much difficulty. Like the first time anybody who wasn't entirely in the cult looked at the evidence and said, you know, holy crap, you're sterilizing kids. There's no evidence this is actually a good idea at all. You better stop. They stopped. Uh, so, so it's the sweet spot, basically. It's the sweet spot where there are, you know, they've imported enough, but there's enough resistance. Other countries are either right down the rabbit hole or, you know, this is a bit mad. No, we're not doing it. And, and you're seeing it being rolled back in the UK as well, because there was a, the recent Kira, Kira Bell case, which I think kind of yes. a, was a landmark case. Um, yes, but it's going to be an absolute house by house fight. I mean, it has gone so far. I think another reason it's all gone so far is because it's so crazy that anyone who isn't in it doesn't believe it's happening. Like, this is the thing I found most difficult. You know, it's the thing I found difficult with editors, for example. You know, I say to them, these people think there's no such thing as men and women and that we should be allowing male rapists and murderers and serial killers and so on to, you know, go in women's prisons if they say they feel like women. And they're like, no, that can't be happening. It's literally happening but you have to shout for a long time before somebody believes you. You don't really believe people are sterilizing children. They are sterilizing children. You don't really believe they're going to allow men to identify into women's rugby. They're doing that. So you have this enormous battle trying to explain to people that yes, this is really happening. And in the meantime, they're living well, you know, going through another 50 institutions with all this nonsense. So they are in every institution. The march through the institutions has been absolutely extraordinary to see. Like nearly every government body, the NHS, all the police forces, all the universities, all of them are signed up to, you know, male people must be allowed into female changing rooms if they identify as female. Like all this stuff, it's in their policies. And so, yes, okay, we get landmark cases, but then you have to go to every damn university in the UK and have an absolute pitched battle that will take you years to row back all those policies. In the meantime, you're being told you're a bigot, your students are writing petitions about you, you know, that if it comes up for tenure, you're not going to get the job, you know. So, so yeah, it, it's going to be the next 10 years of trying to undo this stuff in every single place it is. And I don't know, I don't even know if that's a, a, a viable proposition. It's a lot of people are going to get harmed in the meantime. Yeah, and and for you personally, how how has been how how's this journey been? You know, deep diving deep into this, you know, because there's a lot of quite virulent activists on this side. I mean, too early to talk, I suppose. Um, I mean, work has just let me get on with it. Uh, you know, I told them I was writing the book, and I write the book, and then I do my job, and those two things have been quite separate. So. Uh, that's really important because I think a lot of the women who've had to go silent are the women who have um, realised that, you know, there's a very credible threat that they're going to lose their jobs. I mean, there's a lot more women I know who've lost their jobs than is publicly known because you don't want that publicised. Like, if you know, if it becomes known, your name is attached to, oh, she's a troublemaker, she's a bigot, like, especially if someone can say you're a bigot. 
Um, so those women go quietly, but by now I know a lot of the sort of the, the lawyers, the sort of you know background feminist lawyer network that try their best to help these women when this happens, and they reach out to them. So I know from that network that there's a lot of women this has happened to. Uh, so I haven't had that situation. You know, I can still put bread on the table. Um, I would say the second thing is that my family think it's fine. You know, I don't have daughters. So some people have to step back when their daughters say to them, "You're a bigot." Um, I don't know why it's young women. I mean, they're the people whose rights are most harmed. And, and I mean, I think it's also a question for people how um, able they are to cope with cognitive dissonance. Like, there are two pools, I think, for all of us. One is that you want to think well of yourself and to think that your opinions hang together. And then you also want to fit in with your friends and fit in with your political tribe and all of that, you know? Well, I'm not politically affiliated and never have been. And I think I'm quite a disagreeable person. I don't mean I'm nasty. I mean that I don't much care if people don't like me. And I am someone who cannot cope at all with, with cognitive dissonance. I just can't cope. I can't do it. It bothers me too much. So the reason that I went into all of this, like, like some people say, oh, it's the kids. Well, yes, it's the kids. You know, some people say it's you know, women's rights. Yes, it's women's rights. But for me, it was the circular definition. I can't stand it. It, 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 it. It's like, you know, nails on a blackboard. So something I didn't say to you is I have a PhD in mathematics. I was an academic before I became a journalist. And so, you know, that was the thing that I noticed first. Like if you say trans women are women, the immediate next question is, well, what does the word woman mean then? And then you, you literally get told there's no definition. You can't define the word woman. Well, I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. You can't put a category into law. You can't look at mam a mammalian species that evolved and that's related to every other mammal and say it's not possible to define the sexes, it's completely absurd. But that bothered me so much that I couldn't cope with it. And that made every other cost worth paying. Yeah, no, I, I completely uh, echo your feelings. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's part of why I started this, this podcast as well. I mean, I, uh, I've, I've had a, a few moments like this, probably not, not as, you know, uh, not as big as to prompt me to, to, to write a book about it, but uh, yeah, to, to start a podcast at least. So yes, uh, I think, I think, you know, uh, disagreeable women are, are a, a, a big mover into, into the, into the darker places of our culture. So it's, uh, it's good. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about as well is kind of a, a kind of a subtopic that is quite radioactive in, in, in the trans community is this concept of, of autogynephilia and, and the work of Ray Blanchard. And I know you mentioned it in your book. Um, why do you think the idea that, you know, that this is, this is a, a paraphilia, like many other paraphilias, is, is such a taboo? So there's a great phrase that a journalist and a medical historian called Alice Drager came up with. She said, it's the love that would really rather you did not speak its name. And so to explain to your listeners who don't know about this, and everyone thinks when they know nothing about this subject that trans people will obviously be opposite sex attracted. They assume that you're talking about, you know, men who are so gay that they're women. That's a ridiculous way to put it. And I don't think that gay men are like that, but that is what people think before they start. You know, I can promise you, even if you disagree with that, that is what people think and vice versa, the other way around. They think that it's like such hyper butch lesbians that they just have to live as men. And actually there are people like that. And historically there have always been people like that. But the surprising thing is that most trans-identified male people, as in trans women, are in fact heterosexual people. They're people who are attracted to women. That's why they say they're lesbians. 
So Ray Blanchard was a sexologist. He still is a sexologist. Um, he's semi-retired, although I think he's working more now in retirement than he ever did before, probably. Um, and in the 1990s and, a bit, and earlier, he, he did a series of very elegant um, sort of pieces of research on the people he was seeing at the adult gender clinic in Toronto, which would see, you know, some dozens of people a year. And we don't have to go into the details of the science, but I mean, he proved really pretty conclusively that they fell into two categories. You know, one was people who were same-sex attracted, men who were attracted to men, who had known since they were very tiny that they were super, super gender non-conforming. Like the little boys who are two or three or dressing up in their sister's clothes, saying, look, I'm a girl, these sort of people. Now, a lot of gay men are like that, actually. If they look back, they will say that they were very gender non-conforming in early childhood. And then puberty comes along and it tells you, oh, I see, all right, fine. That's why I was different. But every now and then, puberty doesn't sort it. And that's one group of trans women. But the other group had not been gender non-conforming in early childhood. And they had, got, they had not been gender non-conforming at any point. In fact, they were often quite super gender conforming. They were people who were you know, in the army, computer science, engineering, quite hard charging men who had gone quite far in their careers. They were married with kids and it was in their 40s that they generally came in. The other group came in in their 20s and early 30s. Um, and these men would say, I always felt I had a woman inside. And you're like, mm, weird, because there's literally nothing about you that you look at you and think, oh yeah, I see what you mean. With the other group, you really see what they mean when they say there's a woman inside. And so he did a lot of investigating. And the thing was, what these men, what they meant by the woman inside was a love affair with the idea of themselves as a woman. So they would fantasize, you know, during sex, they would fantasize that they were women. Um, and depending on how this played out, they might be happy just being a cross-dresser. Cross-dressing is a very common male paraphilia. Probably about 3% of men cross-dress for erotic reasons. But some of them just can't be happy with the body the way it is. And those were the men he was seeing. And he called this autogynephilia from the Greek for love of oneself as a woman. But the thing is, if you imagine you're that person, you don't love the idea that you want to be a woman. You love the idea that you are a woman. So somebody else saying to you, oh, you have this um, paraphilia that means that you are fant you know, the fantasy of yourself as a woman is the most exciting thing you can think of. That's incredibly disrupting to your fantasy. And these are hard charging, quite aggressive men. So, you know, they don't like you saying this at all. So Ray says that all the, um, from his own observations, all the really quite vicious trans activists, and this is a good point for me to say trans activists do not represent most trans people. So there's, there's perfectly nice trans people who are just trying to live in this world in a difficult way. And then there's a small minority of completely toxic people who make all the noise and races, they're autogynophiles. They're autogynophiles who are willing to try to change the world rather than accept that they're quite unusual. Yes, that's that's kind of what I've noticed as well. Like uh, if you were to, to kind of um, make a, a roundup of, of the top trans activists or people that are making the, the most noise, these are people who are, you know, either generals or, or people who have, have had quite intense corporate careers and uh, and now they're, they're kind of at the... Uh, kind of past the pinnacle of their career but moving into maybe conquering other <laughs> other territories exactly exactly and i mean they're angry with women and the, the reason that this all falls on women isn't just that males identifying into women's spaces is a threat in the way that females identifying into male spaces are not a threat it's also that these men or these male people are um people who have never taken no for an answer you know, they're people who've done really well in their careers, probably very uh, authoritarian types, and now they want the next thing. And these wretched women have the cheek to say no. 
you know, it's both disrupting their erotic fantasy, but also it's the first time in the world that people have said no to them. I presume it must be rather like the, you know, the office underling that you're told to go and make coffee to you, having the cheek to say, no, I don't make coffee. You know, so they're, they're very, 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 very angry with women. And they're very angry specifically with lesbians because it's lesbians that they want to have sex with. And it's also, um, you know, having a lesbian have sex with you is the most validating thing that you could possibly have if you are a, you know, a man who wishes to be a woman. It's like, it's like achievements unlocked, you know, they'll even say that, you know, I've seen, I've seen so many pictures of men who have just transitioned and they're in their first day out in a dress and lipstick and they go into the women's loos and then they take a picture of themselves, a selfie, in the, in the mirror in the women's loos, achievement unlocked. You know, it's like, God almighty, this is not why we made women's toilets. Yes, and that's, I think, a, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the forums and out of, you know, Reddit and things like that. I think like, you know, the fact that people have access to that information and, uh, you know, women see that as well. I think it, it really is a, a good leverage point to, you know, have a, have a closer look at the community. And I know a lot of women don't like what they see. Like that's kind of... No, of course not. It's horrible. But, it, but it's also very difficult to talk about in the mainstream because you sound like you're the weirdo and pervert. Like, and especially when you're not meant to use the words male or man about people. Like, if you're meant to be calling somebody a, a, a female, even. Like, at first I thought, oh, well, okay, the words man and woman are now gone, but we can at least hold on to male and female, which do mean the same thing right across the animal kingdom, by the way. But now you're transphobic if you call a trans woman male. You have to call them female. But, I mean, they're not female, they're male. If they were female, they wouldn't be trans. But anyway, so here I'm talking, like, and I'm saying male and female to use their proper words. But I mean, if you try talking to a trans woman on Twitter and you use the word male, you will get kicked off by Twitter. You will lose your account. So you're not even allowed to use the word male. So what are you to talk about? You get onto penises. You find yourself, like, just, you know, just trying to defend the fact that there are two sexes and you've got to bloody genitals, you know? I mean, we don't go around the place going vagina haver and testicle haver and so on, but that's the language they want us to use. And, and one of the reasons is because it's so hard to argue for your rights if you go straight to penises. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this. Yeah. I, was a, I was a very ordinary middle-aged woman and here I am talking about penises on, on a podcast. You know? So you want to say, okay, this person shouldn't be in um, women's rugby. Why? Well, they're male. Oh no, that's transphobic if you say that. Bloody hell, now I have to talk about penises again. <laughs> exactly. They just, they just want to make you talk about penises. And yeah, they, they really do, because then you look like the pervert. Then they say, oh, you're a genital fetishist. And, <laughs> you know, why do you, have to, what, why do you care what's in someone else's pants? I don't care what's in someone else's pants. I care whether they're male or female, but you wouldn't let me say that. Yeah, because there is no definition except for, for total circularity on, on what that actually yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lovely one that I saw, um, a pretty well-known trans woman athlete called Rachel McKinnon, who now goes by Veronica Ivey, Canadian, who um, won uh, Masters, that means like over a certain age, uh, World Cycling Championship as a woman. Now, I mean, this is a male person who's really very big, very male. Um, you know, I wouldn't have said a particularly good cyclist for a male, not in great shape completely able to blast the, the females out of the water in the world's you know, best over 35 cyclists and got an op-ed in the New York Times. And the New York Times is meant to fact check even its op-eds. And there's this sentence in it that, um, you know, I'm racing in the women's category because that is where I belong. Uh, I am a woman. I am female as well. And they left that sentence in. I am female as well. Well, then why are you... That, I mean, that's another thing that's happened during all of this. I have lost so much respect for so many of the commentators and meaning makers. 
you know, I didn't know until I did this that somebody like the New York Times would leave a sentence like that in something. Yeah, you know. this is a uh, Gilman amnesia. You know, when whenever you uh, you you know a subject very well, that's the that's. Oh, the but moment. you don't have to know something very well to know that somebody who's a trans woman isn't female. Like that's the thing that amazes me about it. It's this isn't a hard one. This is something that two-year-olds know. I mean, they don't quite know what makes people male and female, but I mean, people are born able to recognize the difference between male and female. They recognize male and female voices. You know, it's hardwired into us. So this isn't, you know, oh, they said something stupid about quantum mechanics. This is that they said something stupid about like, the most basic classification of the species that we are and the way that we reproduce. I just, I, I, I mean, I've thought about almost nothing else for about three years now and I still boggle. You've mentioned before that there is this category of kind of the the, the high flying, uh, you know, ultra powerful male to female um, trans person, which we see, you know, in, in overrepresented activists. Um, is there is there a very stark difference between how the trans phenomenon manifests in, in, in men and women outside of this kind of little fringe fringe group? Um, like, because for example, I, I went on Pinterest recently. And they were really trying to sell me on the the female to male trans uh, stuff, which was quite quite shocking to me because I was just there to, I don't know, check for baby stuff, and like every every third pin was about, uh, I don't know, easing my transition, and I was like, is this a cookie or something? How did this come to me? You must have searched. You must have searched my book or something like I that, and have, it's yeah, chasing something. you around. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, I I don't I didn't think much about my sex before this topic. Um, I mean, I would have said I was a feminist from when I was a teenager, but what I meant was that I believed, you know, that women could do everything that men could do, except for obviously there are actual differences between men and women. And then I went into the maths PhD and, you know, had kids and mixed up whatever I wanted to do and didn't give it any much more thought and didn't spend my time walking around the place going, gosh, that's very masculine behavior. Gosh, that's very feminine behavior. And then I come to this topic where we're meant to pretend that male and female don't exist. And I see sex differences all the time. I've never seen them so clearly. It's incredible. And one of the biggest ones is in what you say, which is the way that transgenderism manifests in males and females. So males, some you know, the minority, but a sizable minority is um, same sex attracted male people just find that they fit into the world so much better as women. It's so much better. Now that makes me a bit sad. I have gay male friends who are, and relatives who are very close to me and it makes me sad that the world can't accommodate ultra-feminine gay men very well. But it, it, you know, some men feel that it can't. And then on the other side, you do have the, uh, the butch lesbian transitioning. I mean, some people say there are no butchers left anymore. They're really nearly all calling themselves trans men now. They've cut their breasts off, they're on testosterone. But then there's, that's not the majority. And in fact, it's not the majority of people who see clinicians now. It's a wholly new group, which is teenage girls. So teenage girls that were first mentioned in the literature, I think 2011, 2012. So really recently, it wasn't even a phenomenon. And the very little kids who said that they were members of the opposite sex were mostly boys. And suddenly there's this huge group of teenage girls who are saying that they want to be boys or they're saying that they're non-binary or they're saying they're demi-boy or they call themselves she, uh, it, sorry, what is it? It's he, they. So they don't mind what you call them as long as you don't call them a girl. And this, a lot of this flies under the radar and you don't have teenage kids, I do. And if you ask around um, other mothers and other people who have kids in liberal, big liberal cities, you will find like really an incredible proportion maybe like five to 10% of the girls are 
identifying as something other than girl. So there's sort of two things happening there. One is I think it's unbelievably unfashionable to be a girl. Like there's always been this thing that younger women think older women are just incredibly tedious. Like it's awful to think that you're going to turn into one of those fat sows, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I mean, really, that is what teenage girls are like. I saw a horrendous one the other day. Uh, somebody showed me a chat uh, on a WhatsApp group in between two non-binary girls. I mean, they're, you know, mid-teens and they were, um, they were talking about how transphobic somebody they knew was. And one of them said to the other, um, you know, tariffs should have, should have to shut the fuck up. And the other one said, yeah, stitch their mouths closed, stitch a bitch. And these are two teenage girls talking. And, you know, the internalized misogyny is just unbelievable. Misogyny is always very linked with ageism. Um, you know, it's older women who are really hated. Young women, the value is seen in them. They're beautiful. They're, you know, they're sexually interesting. Once women have stopped being sexually interesting, they stop being of any interest at all. And they're meant to just shut the fuck up and do the washing, you know? And even young girls think that too. So there's that thing of identifying out of being a woman, identifying out of, you know, our bodies are difficult. A lot of teenage girls don't think they want to be mothers. They probably will be mothers, but they don't think they want to be. And then the other one is, this is just the latest fashionable self-harm. And girls are the ones who self-harm more. So the same girls as would have had eating disorders or would have cut are now identifying as trans. And there's the internet has come along at the same time. So they're all, they go on to Tumblr. Tumblr was a nightmare, absolute nightmare. It was just, it was just like a, you know, a, an attempt to create a social contagion and it succeeded. So yeah, it's, it's just nothing like that. I would say that there's another group of boys, teenage boys recently, and I didn't write about this in my book because I wasn't really aware of it enough. And if I ever, if I ever write more about this, it's the teenage boys I'll write about. And they're the kind of quirky autistic spectrum, maybe autistic traits, kind of weird boys who don't identify with being a boy much, but you know, you wouldn't have thought about it very much. And now we talk this whole toxic masculinity thing. And nobody wants to be a toxic masculine person, you know? So, so they think they can identify out of that. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you think that you're immortal and you maybe haven't had any operations or any serious injuries and you don't understand what transition means. And it's sold like you can just be turned into a member of the opposite sex. You don't realise what a major operation a hysterectomy is or, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they really are, they're really, um, in the phrase of the journalist Mary Harrington here in the UK, you know, it's like meat Lego, like you're, you're, you're taught that your body is just something that can be at will, bits chopped off, bits added on, and it'll be the same, you know, like they, they complain even if you say, well, it's a neo-vagina, you know, if, if your listeners don't know the way that um, trans women, if they go the full way, what, um, what the operation involves is taking out the inner part of the penis leaving the nerves and the skin and inverting that into a new cavity that's created. Uh, so you've got something that you, you know, outwardly and cosmetically looks like a vagina, but the vagina is actually a very complex organ that can do amazing things like expand to allow a baby's head through. It's not a vagina. This is a penis of skin. And yet you're meant to pretend that this is the same as a vagina, you know? So that's the way, you know, I think it's sometimes people only discover after they've done it that they haven't been turned into really a girl. Yeah, exactly. And you can see this a lot with the with the detransitioners and people who kind of slowly are starting to, you know, tell their stories. And even though they, they are being um, suppressed quite a lot by, by the, the, the more active parts of the, of the trans community, the stories are absolutely horrendous. And, you know, yeah, they're treated like they're apostates, you know, they're the people who are most dangerous for any religious style belief or any metaphysical belief, the people who used to believe and then stopped believing are the most dangerous to the narrative. 
So they really come for the worst abuse. And it's horrible. I mean, they're people who have maybe lost their reproductive organs. Um, you know, the people who, whose health has been impacted in ways that uh, we simply don't know because the research isn't being done, because the research is also being suppressed. The quality of research on this subject is the most ferocious thing. Yeah, my cat wants to be in, in the recording as well. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. <laughs> it, looked like, it looked like one of those very long microphones. Yeah, she, she typically <laughs> likes to, to sleep uh, during the, the podcast. She kind of wants to, to hang out, but uh, now she's, uh, she's active. So um, Sweet. Yes, um, I think the like you said, you know, Mary Harrington's idea of of, of meat Lego is, is is quite, you know, it's it's striking how well it encompasses this, and um, obviously a lot of other other movements. I think this is just a, the kind of the the tip of the spear of the idea that okay, you know, um, identities uh, are sacred, um, but there's there's also the the the, the concept that you know not only is you know gender socially constructed and it's all these roles that we take on but at the same time where we have to believe that this is also there's also something kind of like a, um, a, a something that the soul emanates directly from the soul yes about, it's weird isn't it it's yeah. such a contradiction that it's both I, I i actually think they've given up the gender as socially constructed thing i think that that's like a zombie uh, idea that's just continuing on. It's weird to me, for example, that Judith Butler, who's the high priestess of all this stuff, you know, gender trouble and queering gender. So uh, and she's the first person who said in the 1990s that sex is socially constructed, like meaning male and female. Her theory was that doctors made babies male or female by saying it's a boy or a girl. I mean, this is, I know, I see your face. It's so lunatic that it's incredible to me that this got any traction but it's now, you know, orthodoxy. But she still believes that these things are socially constructed and, you know, that what you should be doing is queering them. You should be troubling the boundaries, that it's, it's innately uh, liberatory, you know, for a man to dress in drag, for, you know, anything that goes against the, the normative is good. And that's very contradictory with this idea that we all have a gendered soul, which is the sort of flattened activist, populist version that, finds its um you know yeah finds its expression in the way that gender clinics work now uh, they're completely contradictory and yet they both co sort of coexist and people don't seem to notice the contradictions between the two and i think it's all back to this thing you know of saying people are bigots if they if they talk about it so if if as soon as somebody says hang on a bit it can't be both socially constructed and something innate that you innate and ineffable and that you automatically know and that you know I mean, one of the famous gender clinicians, Diane Ehrensaft, says that you know it before you can speak. Like she's been recorded saying that, you know, children know this at two or three and they send gender messages to their parents. You know, a little boy will open the pop fasteners on his onesie to turn it into a skirt. Uh, a little girl will tear out her, her clip or her barrette to show that she's really a boy before she can speak. I, I know, I can see your face, but this is literally the world, one of the world's most famous gender doctors. And so you can't believe both those things. It can't be both socially constructed and something that's so innate that a child before they can speak can signal to their parents that they're really a boy, really a girl, and that the doctor got it wrong. But you know, if, if you say, hang on, you're just told you're a bigot. 
Yeah. And it is interesting how um, th this whole idea of, you know, of the gendered soul kind of starts to, to, to deconstruct a lot of the uh, a lot of kind of fourth wave feminist ideas about about, you know, how how, how <laughs> we exist and, and, and brings brings in a way the, the subject of, of sex differences back into into the discussion, which was kind of, you know, like you described it, the glass ceiling feminists didn't want to didn't want to hear about that at all. But now it's it's almost, you know, you, you kind of have to think about it because, you know, if you if you have a gendered soul and, you know, being a woman involves wearing a very particular type of lipstick and high heels and you know it's uh it's it's all kind of back on the table i feel like it breaks open feminism in a way that you know not many other subjects have so maybe that's a good thing um i mean as i say i've always described myself as a feminist but i suspect that's partly because i managed to ignore a lot of what was happening in feminism <laughs> you know I mean, I had no idea how crazy it had gone. Um, I, I just don't know how somebody can support, say, the Me Too movement and also support allowing any male to identify into women's prisons. Like to have such an acute analysis of the power imbalance between Harvey Weinstein and young actresses and to understand why it's not OK to have an industry in which Harvey Weinstein can say, meet me in my hotel room and also think it's OK that a man who decapitated his wife because she came home and found him dressing up in her clothes and is now serving life without parole can say he's a woman and then he moved to a women's prison. Like, how can the same person believe both these things? I just, I would actually really love to be in that sort of person's head for a bit because the cognitive dissonance is so extraordinary to me that I'd like to experience it because I can't imagine it. And yet that's mainstream American feminism for you. They believe both those things, but it's as bad as it can possibly be to wolf whistle somebody or to have an industry in which uh, interviews are in hotel rooms. And I think industries hotel, interviews in hotel rooms is a very bad idea. But it is also absolutely a civil rights movement to do as California has just done. And to say that every prisoner on admission should be asked whether they identify as male, female or non-binary and which prison they think they should be held in. Yeah, that's... Um... Uh, it, it is a it is a strange thing, but I, I I do feel like you know women tend to and now I'm I'm revealing my 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 sex difference bias here, mm -hmm. um, tend to to try to kind of fit in uh, in, in in kind of a, a more agreeable way with um, what they maybe find to be the right side of history in this case. You know that you know this... I think women are socially. Um... I mean, I'm sure that it's true, and, and the research shows that women are more agreeable than men. And I think you and I are probably sort of on the slightly disagreeable side, so maybe um, we're unusual in that. But just, you know, just as a population group, yes, women score higher on measures of agreeability. But I think there's, I don't think you can overlook the extreme nature of the punishment that falls on women and women only for stepping out of line on this. So I, I, there's a very nice journalist, a chap called James Kirkup here in the UK, who has been writing very well about all of this stuff, stuff for years. He just doesn't get any of it. Nobody's like, you know, suck my tranny dick, you fucking bastard, to him. It's the female journalists who get that stuff. And he's even written about that. You know, he says, you know, what could it be about me that these people are seeing <laughs> that makes them think the rape and death threats aren't you know, appropriate to me? So it's really women that these things fall on. And again, that partly comes back to the autogynophilia thing that people who are autogynophilic, it's women that they require validation from, not men, men are irrelevant. But it's also that women are meant to be the people who provide the um, emotional and sexual services for everybody. So, I mean, I sometimes call us the support humans. You know, women, women are like the support humans or the supporting actresses. And 
they get very angry with you when you show that you see yourself as the center, you know, the main character in your own life drama. You've just, you've just broken the rules. You were meant to be decorative, compliant, uh, you know, just there to say, and oh, well done, you know, to be on the on second place on the podium while the, the, the trans woman wins the medal and you're like, oh, you're so great, you know? Of course, the funny, depressing thing is there's a lot of women who are like that. So many women really are support humans and I couldn't despise them more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a tough one, sisters. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wish, you know, this, the, the, the uncovering or the, the, um, the solving of this cognitive dissonance was more important to, to, to women than um, just, you know, going along to, to get along or to, a to bit of self-respect is all that I'd ask for, you know, like I look at some of these, I, I mean, I, I don't want to just pick out one account, but I, there is one I'm thinking of and the lack of self-respect inherent in, you know, pretty explicitly saying that the very best sort of women are the male ones. It's just, you know, girl. Yeah, so this is very like old school, you know, nineteen fifties no. style misogyny. All the best chefs. It are really men is. And stuff it like is. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, but Jesus, uh, it's yeah, it's 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 quite it's quite sad. And I feel like you know a, a lot of what prompted me to you know be a bit more outspoken was the, my frustration with the with you know the silence about really obvious glaring issues in women's in women's circles. Um, yes. And all, you I know, mean, can you call yourself a feminist if you know that rapists and serial killers are being transferred into women's prisons and you say nothing about it? In my opinion, no. Like that's like a rock bottom condition to regard yourself as someone who stands up for women. It's an absolute human rights abuse. And if it were in, done in the context of war, it would be a war crime. There's no American feminist group except for the tiny new ones like Wolf Women's Liberation Front who are saying a damn thing about it except, ooh, good for Governor Newsom. My God. It tells you a little bit about kind of what the final purpose of these movements typically is. And it's, it's you know, to, to, to give uh, identity to the particular members to, uh, you know, to, to, to be a balm for the soul about, you know, where one is on the, on the side of history. Identity to some members, not to women. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? And isn't it interesting that they don't take the same approach to race? You know, you can't identify into another race. I mean, some people say maybe we will be able to one day, but... Um, you know, if you look at Rachel Dolezal, so if people remember that was some years ago, um, a woman of entirely white European an ancestry who I think had a very sincere interest and identification with uh, African, American, black African um, history, taught it, and she used fake tan and she had extremely curly hair naturally, so she was able to sort of just look like she was mixed race. And, and she actually taught subjects like Africana history and she was a chapter president for the NAACP and then she her parents outed her as having literally no black ancestry that anybody knew of going well back and showed pictures of her as a young girl you know so she was globally vilified and all the same people who say trans women are women talk about her and they say these extraordinary things like you know she has appropriated a painful history that was not hers and you're like yes yes exactly it's bad isn't it you know, why are you allowing males to identify into femalehood? And I think um, on the academic side, the reason that these things are so inconsistent is that they are theorized in different places. 
So race is theorized in critical race theory, where your race is this incredibly essential thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. And in particular, if you're white, you have the ineradicable stain of whiteness and you mustn't be allowed to identify out of being white because if you were allowed to identify out of being white, you could identify out of doing anti-racist work. You must accept that you will have an original sin and that you must be atoning for that all your life. But then over here is male and female, which of course are far more real things than black and white. Like it's far more binary and far more fixed and far more meaningful. Uh, over here, that's queer theory. And there identifying out of your group is seen as an inherently good thing and inherently uh, you know, sticking it to the man type thing. And, and the two, the, never the twain shall meet. The same people believe both these things and don't see the total contradiction. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, um, it's, it is very interesting how, you know, we've, we've accumulated a lot of, uh, you know, apparent cognitive dissonance in our culture, but uh, it doesn't seem like there's any, any clearing point. I mean, what, what do you see on the horizon for, for this, um, do you see a, a, a breaking point or, you know, is, is this going to continue galloping <laughs> into, into yeah. the future? I mean, here in the UK, I do think the tide is gradually turning. And as I say, I do think it's going to take a very long time to unwrap all the, the harm that has been done. And that's going to be difficult. And I think some things may, may not actually succeed. I think we may never, for example, get back to having single sex toilets. We may manage with sports, we may manage with prisons, we may manage the rape crisis centres. And, you know, people say this thing of, well, we just need to pee or it's just toilets or I don't know what you do in toilets. But actually, they are an important place for protecting women from um, sexual assault. Like if people imagine, you know, the nice toilets daytime with people around in a busy shopping centre. They forget about, you know, the nasty toilets down the back of the alley behind some dodgy nightclub. Um, you know, so, so there will be, there will be people who are raped and attacked because of this. But I suspect we, might, we may not be able to get that one back. It just, it's just so hard to explain to people how important it is. In the US, I think, um, you know, all I see is further polarization. It just gets worse and worse. And I mean, if I were a Republican, I'm, I'm not aligned, I'm not politically aligned. If I were a Republican and I looked at people who were willing to put rapists in women's jails, there's no chance in hell I would vote for somebody who would do that. I couldn't do it. But if I were a Democrat and I look at a party that is enthralled to a man who you know, really says outright full-blown racist things, encourages people to consort with people who are actual racist you know, ag agita ag agitators, I couldn't vote for him either. So I think there's just this awful situation in America where it just gets worse and worse in both directions. And I mean, I hesitate to say, I think that there's a breaking point, but I just don't see how you get back from that. I don't see how sanity emerges in this, in this polarization ratchet machine. Yeah, I think the, the, the ratchet is the most important thing because yes. I think a, a lot of the information, even about the, the, the policies and the people and the direction of the policies are all in these feedback loops. They're all embedded into, you know, just just going being a little bit more extreme than than the other person. So um, I think at, at base, none of these people are as bad as their enemies try to, to make them out to be. Um, but at the same time, they're kind of encouraged to be worse just because to, to distance themselves from, you know, the, 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 the center ground, which doesn't really exist. I don't think it's it ever existed, but now it really is kind of like a hollowed out bomb crater. No one yeah, wants people to say they it. want it, but they won't, but they wouldn't vote for it, you know? 
you get the politicians that you deserve in every system, every democratic system anyway. So it's just not true. People vote for this. People voted for Governor Newsom. People voted for Joe Biden. People voted for Donald Trump. Large numbers, tens of millions of people voted. Not from Newsom, Newsom so much, but at the national level. It's, yeah. yeah. What else are you to do? There's, it's not like they're offering somebody else, you know. Um, I, I also wanted to ask you about the the phenomenon of, of trans widows of these uh, the, the women's that are, are, are left behind, uh, especially in the you know kind of the cases where, according to Blanchard, we're, we're dealing with autogynephilia and, and people in their forties with families. Um, and I've seen some move, I mean, some some voices from from this space kind of speaking out finally, and those stories are also. Absolutely horrendous. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you think that that this is a this is an, an interesting lever in the discussion, or if the, if anyone's paying attention to these women. I think they're the most silenced women imaginable. Um, so one of them, who I interviewed in my book, who goes by the name Tinsel Angel. I genuinely don't know her real name. She's that paranoid about her ex-husband, who is, you know, someone she doesn't really want to have anything much to do with if she can possibly help it anymore. She was actually invited to talk to a parliamentary inquiry. We just, I don't know what it is. Every time we get a new government in, a new bunch of idiots decide that they really need to look at this subject again, even though the last one started in the wrong place and managed to be dragged back to sanity by the enormous efforts of women's grassroots groups. So we're going through another one of these now, even having just finished the previous one. Anyway, she was invited to give evidence to it and she had to say no because she wasn't willing to, to give her name or to be seen on camera. So they are, I mean, they are more silenced than, than detransitioners. They are the most marginalized group and that is because they are the most disruptive group to the narrative. What they're meant to do and what some do is to say, I was always a lesbian. Because it's, it's not just the present that's rewritten, it's the past too, if you believe the whole you know, inner identity version of gender identity. So when your husband, with whom you have had children, whom you married maybe 20 years ago, says to you, I'm not only a woman, I was always a woman, that means that you were always a lesbian. And so you either have the choice of going along with this, and there's a woman called Amanda Knox, Amanda Jette Knox, I think, in Canada, who blogs about this. So it was first one of her children who came out as trans, who now identifies as non-binary, I think. And then her, what, what was husband, uh, told her that he was really a woman. And they stayed together. And I mean, all power to them. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying she shouldn't have. But she blogs about how she was always a lesbian. And she's written a book called Love Lives Here. And she, taught, you know, she does these things like she, she tweets pictures of herself in a hat and she says, oh, this is such a lesbian hat, you know. It's like, oh, God. You married a man and had four kids with him, you know. All right, fine, whatever. But so that gets you longlisted for literary awards. That gets you blogs. That gets you invited on telly. And then over here, there are women going, you know what? I'm, I'm just a heterosexual woman who married a man. I'm not staying with you if you do these bizarre body modifications and you know, go and get voice training to try and sound squeaky and, you know, go around in high heels and wear loads of makeup and things. Well, she's, she's breaking the support human rule. <laughs> she's doing what women aren't meant to do. She's centering herself in her own life. So those women um, can't tell their stories really anywhere. There's one woman who has written a book about this, and I'm now just having a blank on her name, um, Christine Benvenuto. Uh, so there are, these are two interesting books because her ex-husband, who's now, who now lives as a woman who transitioned, um, Joy Layden. So Joy Layden and Christine Benvenuto have both written autobiographies. So you see the story from both sides. And one of those books, I will leave it as an exercise to your viewers to say which one, long listed for literary awards, many <laughs> reviews everywhere. The other one 
lost her all her friends, lost her the chance to get any writing jobs in the future. It meant it was very difficult when I tried to reach out to her to ask her for the book. And in the end, what she would do was send me a short comment by email. Um, you know, she wasn't willing to talk by phone or anything like that. So yeah, there's just this incredible imbalance. I, I think it's because you, you know, when you, you know, you know, I often think of these situations where people do things like say, dig a tunnel from two ends and they need to meet in the middle. And it's when you get to the middle that you find out whether you've got it right or not. Well, the trans widows are a join. And that's where you find out that you actually can't do this. You can't let both people in this relationship identify themselves. You cannot have this male person identify himself as a lesbian and this female person identify herself as a lifelong heterosexual. They won't meet. And it's the woman's story that has to be silenced because, you, you, you know, that's the, the rewriting of history that's required for this narrative that we're all meant to be going along with at the moment. Um, how, how common is um, the case of, of the, the opposite of, of women transitioning later in life and marriage? Just, just imagine, just imagine, Alex, imagine your average bloke whose middle-aged wife comes home and says, I'm going to start wearing leathers, cut, cut my hair, get my breasts removed, take testosterone, grow a beard, buy myself a motorbike and start hanging around in, you know, pubs playing pool he's accelerating over the event horizon before she's finished the sentence. So, I mean, I don't know if you know the figures on um, partners where one, one gets a severe illness, it men leave and women stay when their partner gets, you know, a diagnosis of, you know, severe or terminal cancer. Uh, not all, <laughs> there are men who stay, but there's a very big sex difference there. So yeah, no, it doesn't happen. Anyway, to be honest, Middle-aged women aren't actually very keen on this. Like one of the questions that I sometimes ask people who think about this whole uh, thing as identities is where are all the middle-aged women transitioning? Like if you say to them, uh, why do you think there's all these teenage girls who are transitioning when there were no teenage girls transitioning 10 years ago? And they say, oh, greater acceptance. You say, oh, well, if there's greater acceptance, where are all the 50-something-year-old women transitioning? It's, women don't have as many paraphilias as men. Like they don't have 100 as many paraphilias as men. It's men who want to do odd things sexually <laughs> rather than women mostly so yeah the middle-aged women don't want to but if they did i don't think anyone would hang around yeah it's it is interesting and i feel like um the the uh, even the concept of paraphilias is kind of going out the door the idea that yeah. you know, with, with the you know with kink shaming one should not kink shame because that's part of you know uh you know, who you are it's your beautiful identity exactly. and it's in the rainbow flag now have you seen the way they keep redrawing the rainbow flag i think it, there's an update this morning <laughs> there was yeah now with the circle on it that somehow is meant to mean intersex i have literally no idea how that could be yeah, I mean, it's it's not necessarily the most coherent flag. <laughs> I did want to say, I, I realised I should have said one thing about the trans widows mm -hmm. thing. There is one situation where women do that, and that's butch lesbian, uh, lesbians mm -hmm. and lesbian couples. So that happens a lot. And I think it's really, really hard on the um, the partner, but some do stay. So the lesbian community has always been quite accepting of women who present super male. Mm -hmm. Like who maybe even use he you know, call themselves, hey, use a man's name, you know, dress entirely male. Um, I do know couples in that situation and they did manage to stay together, um, including some where the, the woman who lived as a trans man for a while has now detransitioned. And it's incredibly disruptive and the detransitioners among them feel very guilty for the pain they put their partners through. But a lot of butch lesbians live with dysphoria. You know, they live with the, the gender dysphoria because they are just the most gender non-conforming people in our society. And, you know, it's not like, you know, whenever you think of like gay acceptance and gay pride and things, it's always a man they show you. They never show you, 
you know, a woman who never gave a shit about beauty regimes and who just is just that super butch. That's never been the fashion. So those women, I think even in the middle age may decide to transition and live as men now that that seems like an option. Yeah. And for, for the kind of the, the teenage contingent, these, you know, this, this growing army of girls who, who don't want to identify with, uh, with their first sex. Um, do you think this has something to do with the, with how virulent uh, the, the standards are and in, in how, how one can, um, you know, gain attention for, for their sexuality? Like, it's pretty standardized what you should look like if you're a woman who, you know, who can, who can bank on, on her sexuality. Like now with Instagram, I mean, fa faces, literal morphology of faces is converging to one type of, of, yes. of beauty. Um, and I, I could understand that someone would might, might want to opt out especially if they're quite far away from that standard and you yes know, um or even if they're very close to it um i mean among the people i interviewed the detransitioners that i interviewed some very pretty indeed and really very implausible men there's one i'm thinking of she's really small and curvy and extremely good looking it's like how did you think that you were going to be taken as a man you know it's so completely unrealistic like she told me that um one when she came out to her ice her ice skating teacher, like he just couldn't keep his face straight. Like, so she wasn't even masculine, you know? So, so many different routes whereby teenage girls can come to this now, absolutely definitely escaping from the pornified culture is part of it. Like most kids now see really gruesome and grotesque violent porn before they even start to have sexual feelings themselves. This is disturbing for all of them, but imagine you're a girl who sees people being choked and spat on and, you know, trebly penetrated and, beaten and throttled you know all of these things before you even start to have sexual feelings i mean who'd want to be a woman if that's what you're going to grow up to be um so the porn is one thing and then the beauty standards is another like it's so it's so impossible that plasticized kardashian sort of look and if you think that you and, and then the third one is that it has always been the case and this is the point of the title of the second sex is that it's men who are fully human and women are not fully human. Women are, um, you know, they're the other, they're the, you know, man is day, woman is night, man is, you know, um, seed, woman is soil, all of these things, like in all these, um, these binaries, it, the man is the actor, the woman is the subject. And if you want to be a full human and you feel yourself to be a full human, well, you know, I was, I, I, I was born in 1968, in the 1970s and 80s, we were told all of that's bullshit. You are a full human. A woman can be anybody, you know, you can do what you like. Now they're not told that anymore. Now they're told that, you know, if you feel like that, you're a man. So they're, they're, they're retaught these sexist stereotypes. They're told that if you don't feel that the pink box suits you, you must jump out and try to be in the blue box and not like screw boxes, which is what I was told. So that's another route. So I think the sex, the porn, the, um, the beauty standards, the incredible miseducation that they're getting in schools now and on Tumblr as well. And just fashion, just contagion. Teenage girls are often pretty damn miserable, you know, and this is the latest way to be miserable. And then the attention that they get. So, uh, you know, it's the, it's the most perfect, brilliant, beautiful thing that you can be now. It's the, it's the latest identity, the latest fashion. I feel very sorry for kids who make ir ir irreversible changes because of something that's so fashion driven, because nothing lasts, no fashion lasts, but they're going to have the, the physical modi modifications for the rest of their lives. Yeah, so the fact that they're, they're not, they're, there's no warning label anymore on these things. No, I mean, I mean, now in many places, the laws, these um, affirmation laws, like that it's, 
in many ways they've managed to um, hijack or to piggyback on the gay rights movement. And a lot of the, the arguments are actually the exact opposite, but they look like they're the same. So one of those is they've managed to capture the public revulsion of the idea of conversion therapy, which was the idea that you could sort of, you know, give electric shocks or reversion therapy to gay men. You know, you look at a, a handsome man and you get an electric shock and you look at a beautiful woman and you don't, you know, you try to scare them or torture them basically into being straight. And that doesn't work. It's also a human rights abuse, but it also doesn't work. So now we're told that it's conversion therapy to try to stop somebody from being trans. Well, most children actually give up their idea that they're members of the opposite sex before or during early puberty. So if you just immediately jump on the idea that they really are trans, you're the one who's committing a conversion. You know, not the people who say, hang on, you know, this is a phase probably, and if it isn't, we'll think about it then. Which is what you should be doing. You know, you should just be saying, you know, actually it's not possible to change sex. There are a few grown-ups who still feel like that. If you turn out to be one of them, we'll support you. In the meantime, what is it that you think you want to do? If you were a boy or a girl, let's do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, and the the idea that, you know, girls girls cannot be tomboys anymore or, or any little signal. No, but somebody will say it. Somebody will say it to you. You know, if you're a parent now when you've got a, a notably gender non-conforming child, someone will say, oh, have you considered that they might be trans? So everybody's fighting against you. The parents who don't want to go along with this will say everybody's fighting against them. And actually a lot of laws now say that any approach other than affirmation by therapists is, is grounds for being struck off and possibly sued and possibly even imprisoned on criminal charges. So the only approach that therapists can take in an increasing number of jurisdictions is to say, yep, that's right, you really are trans. And you can't even mention the fact that nearly, nearly every child who feels like this will grow out of it if, if not affirmed. So you can't even tell the parents that that's no, the case? No, 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 no. You can say nothing except, yes, you really have a little boy or you really have a little girl. I mean, it's a grotesque human rights abuse. We are sterilizing children. That's why I wrote the book. When I realized that we are seriously sterilizing children and the children we are sterilizing are really um, disproportionately proto-gay kids, kids who are destined to grow, grow up gay. So we are actually turning those children into sterile simulacra of the opposite sex rather than just letting them grow up gay. Yeah, I can I can imagine an, another regime of the twentieth century finding this this type of uh, approach quite uh, quite useful in their in their goals. Yeah, you have to be very totalitarian. You have to be extremely um, extremely in your head. You know, it is again to quote Mary Harrington, and I think you as well said something about this. You know, there's the little homunculus behind your eyes living in this this meat sack, and the meat sack is something to just be adjusted. And you know, it feels revolutionary to just say. I am my body. All of me is me. Like this, me is not something in here that's, you know, could be taken out and put into a different body. This is me, all of it. And these kids aren't being told this at all. And, and I, I've looked at a lot of teaching materials and a lot of things that kids are given to read. I mean, seriously, I would like to lock up their authors because I think that they are child abusers. They don't mean to be, but they are. I mean, the things they say, you know, they just say, um, you know, such and such a kid always knew that he was really a girl, that she was really a girl and as a boy, you know, and people are still calling this child George or something like that, and, but she is being used as pronouns. And, and then they'll list why George wants to kiss a boy, George likes pink, George likes ballet, George hates football, George likes hanging around with the girls. This is a gay kid. This is what little gay boys are like, God almighty. And so then it's, it's like, and so then George goes to see the doctor and his parents say that her parents say that she can wear a dress and George is happy, end of story. 
no, oh no, George is going to want puberty blockers. No, George is going to be put on estrogen. Now George's penis is never going to grow and they're not going to be able to do a, a knee or vagina operation anyway on him. Uh, George is now sterile. George has no sexual function because we gained that during puberty. George is now, looks great, but George is a sterile, sexless being. That's the truth. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those things that, you know, if, if, if you were in that situation, if you were someone who's, whose child came, came home and said, okay, you know, mom, I'm, my name's not George anymore. It's, uh, it's Georgina. Um, and also my teachers agree. And also maybe I've talked to someone, uh, without your knowledge at school, who's a not specialist. maybe. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, I, absolutely. And they've learned scripts online as well. Like I've talked to a lot of parents in, in this situation. They are in a really difficult position because the most important thing is to keep the relationship with your child. But your child has already been coached by people online and in school. And they think you're a bigot. This is one of the most annoying things that's happening in schools at the moment. And it isn't just on this subject. Children are told their parents are reactionary bigots. They're bigots on sex. They're bigots on race. They're bigots on sexuality. They're just really past it. And so your child doesn't come home and say, um, you know, this is how I feel. I don't know what to do and turn to you as their confidant and their support and the wise person who cares about them more than anyone else. They come and they tell you, like one of the women I talked to, one of the detransitioners said uh, that she told her mum in the car and she just said, um, something I need to tell you, I've always been a boy, I've always felt like this. And uh, her mum just went like, you've been propagandized by liberals. <laughs> she's like you know now you're a bigot and the pair that went on to a grocery store and they had this huge fight in the grocery store and didn't talk to each other for ages and then when she went off to university and she started to transition to university she just didn't talk to her mother at all for 18 months and her mother was just like this is absurd like this is the one who was an ice skater and very pretty <laughs> it's just the poor mother she's she's lost before she's even started you know other people have got to your kid they've got to your kid on the internet they've got to your kid in school they've maybe referred them to a therapist and then as well the parents say to them um, themselves oh someone will sort this out this is so mad they'll realize that my child is you know autistic spectrum disorder or asd or you know that this has come out of nowhere or they're very depressed or you know she's self-harming or she's anorexic all of these things we'll see a therapist and the therapist will say to the child, you're going a bit fast here. Um, you know, have you thought about your sexuality at all? Because, you know, do you know, by the way, that people who are same sex attracted are often very gender non-conforming. So maybe that's you. So could we just slow down a bit? That's what they expect the parent, the, the, the therapist to say. And the therapist goes, wonderful. Let's, you know, here's the prescription. And the parent says, hang on a minute. And the therapist goes to the child. It's hard parents parents don't understand parents are bigots you know but i've talked to people who the therapist has been in touch with the child when the parent has said no you can't and broken off the contact they've got onto them because they think they're social justice warriors yeah and and the, the therapists that get involved in these very particular niches do tend to be quite um <sighs> Um, they're like know, the people who were in um, multiple personality disorder and so on in the 1990s they're real activists they give you the strong impression that they want as many people to transition as possible so why you know obviously you know there may be a tiny number of people for whom this is the right answer like not a good answer but a better answer than any other but if you could try any other way you'd go any other way like if you could keep your body intact, if you could stay off cross-sex hormones, if you could live as your own sex in a highly gender non-conforming way, that's obviously preferable. You keep your full sexual function, you keep your health, you keep your, your fertility. So that's what they should be trying to do in, in a supportive way, understanding that there may be a tiny number of people who need to do something different. That's the way it used to be. 
Um, is there potentially some some monetary incentive uh, baked into this cake as well? I mean, this is you know kind of verging on on a slightly conspiratorial. Conspiracy, yeah. Um, I don't think it's what started it, but um, if it wasn't making money for people, they wouldn't be doing it. Like, I don't think this. I, I I don't think there's a Mr. Big behind all of this or anything like that. Like some people do, I don't. Uh, there are actually some very well known and very rich trans people who put a lot of money into this, but I think that's just because you know. There are a lot of rich men. There are a few of them who wish to be women. That's where they put their money. I don't think they created it. I just think that they, they make it a lot easier because they're giving their money. I also don't think this came from the pharmaceutical companies. In fact, they were quite late to notice this is a great new market and the same with hospitals. But I mean, the two biggest lobby groups in the States are pharma, uh, pharma firms and hospital and healthcare groups. So they give more money than any other sectors. So yes, of course, they're now giving money on this too. And the, the propaganda has accelerated quite a lot in the last few years. Because like you yes. said, this is a, an old phenomenon. You know, the, the pharma companies might have been late to the show, but they're, now they're, they're on the scene. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, it's, yeah, clear, it's clear what their incentives are and where the money is. And, and, and the whole way that people think about healthcare in America is so consumerist. Like, I'm always astonished when I talk to even people who see how bad it is in America. Like, I talk to, you know, sensible people who understand and who've maybe been through the whole ringer with their own child or something. And here, you know, it's not the case that doctors give you what you want, not at all. Like doctors understand themselves as treating you for an illness. And if you go into a doctor and say, you know, I think these are the treatments that I need, they'll say to you, no, those aren't the treatments that you need. And then Americans say, oh, but you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, damaging your autonomy or whatever. I mean, I talked to one trans woman and I mean, she's quite happy as a trans woman um, and she, she was really, she's really very much the autogynophile. She says she is too. Uh, she's been very successful and she decided to transition, I think, in her late 40s. And she said, you know, I didn't see why I should have to go through all of these, uh, this gatekeeping process. She's older, so she did have to go through all this gatekeeping process. And she said, I had the money. I wanted to pay for my vagina. So what's the problem? <laughs> my money, my vagina. <laughs> yeah. That's right. just not going to get you anywhere here. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely not a, not an NHS appropriate <laughs> sentiment. <laughs> I know I've I've lived in the UK for for a while, and uh, it's it's yeah. quite uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like that's a, a, a blessing here actually is that the NHS is very ill suited to this sort of lobbying, but also the NHS is really unusually on a global standard, very evidence based. So we've got this National Institute for um, Health and Clinical Excellence, I think it's called um, Nice. And that does these um, very systematic uh, cost-benefit analyses for all sorts of subjects. And they've just done them for cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers for kids. And they found no evidence of benefit. I mean, their, their conclusion was just that the evidence-based, you know, it's almost non-existent. The evidence is all rubbish, terrible. A few crappy studies that tell you nothing. And because they have this as an extremely um, systematic and standardized approach, you know, they just go through these things and then the NHS doesn't do things if that there isn't evidence for them. So there's quite a good chance of getting them to stop. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a good little silver lining to, to lead yes. us on. Uh, I, I don't want to keep you much longer. I have a, a question of the show to kind of wrap this up yes. with. Um, do you have a, a subversive thinker and it could be a writer or you know activist, living or dead, someone who's been important to, to, to how you think in general, it doesn't necessarily have to be on this topic, but that you think deserves a little bit more uh, interest from other people? I would like to suggest that people go and read Mike Bailey's book, The Man Who Would Be Queen, which is now more than 15 years old. It's a very honest book um, about 
what he calls androphilic males. These are same-sex attracted males, some of whom will live as gay men, some of whom will live as trans women. And he also looks at the difference between autogynophilic males and androphilic males who become trans women. Um, Mike got harassed to pieces for writing this. I mean, the most horrible harassment. Uh, some trans activists uh, created a website and put, you know, doxed him on it, um, put pictures of his small kids on it with horrible captions like, you know, uh, is this child a, a, a cock-sucking pervert and this sort of thing, you know, with their faces, everything. And um, they complained about him to his state licensing authority. They tried to get him fired from his university. They spread rumors that he was an alcoholic, that he'd broken up his marriage because he was so abusive, all this sort of thing. And it was completely unhinged. And it would all have worked, except for the woman called Alice Drager, who I mentioned already. And um, that's the second book I would suggest people read is um, her book, which is called Galileo's Middle Finger, in which she documents several medical scandals, one of them being um, the suppression of Mike Bailey's work. So Mike is still receiving all this crap now, more than 15 years later. Uh, so yeah, go and read Man Who Would Be Queen and see what activists are willing to do when they're completely unhinged. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's <laughs> startling for, for Mike. Um, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a terrible, a terrible situation. I think it's probably getting, getting worse now because this is heating up um, quite a lot. And I mean, yeah. Um, I, I also want to point people towards uh, towards your book, which is out. I probably now by the time I'm releasing this, because now this is probably going to come out a bit later. Uh, so July fifteenth in the UK, um, you can order it from the UK if you go to a web a bookstore called Blackwells. They will post to most countries free. Uh, it's not going to be out in the states until early September. Perfect. So go to Blackwells. Mr. Blackwells. Also, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Audible. So if you ever have a, an, an audio version, that would be, that would be lovely. We are trying to arrange one. Um, you, you may not be surprised to learn that this is a hard book to get published. It's been hard to get many of the other things, like an audio edition. I can imagine. But uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you've, you've made it. Uh, and uh, I'm really happy to have you on. It, it was lovely well, speaking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And good luck with the rest of this baby making business. Thank adult, you. human, female. Yes, adult, human, female. I've got about four weeks to go. We'll see. We'll see what happens, but I'm very excited about it. It's great. It's a Thanks special a time. All right, Alex. Bye. Bye. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>